Welcome listeners to The Editor's Desk, a regular podcast of First Things Magazine. And I'm Rusty Reno, a host, editor of First Things, and I have with me Michael Duran, uh, author of really one of a, a marvelous piece. It originated as a lecture that he gave for First Things in Washington, D.C. in March of 2018. It was published in the May issue of First Things. The theology, uh not the philosophy, but the theology of foreign policy. And Mike Duran is a foreign policy expert, and he is at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C., has held uh, a number of different positions in government. And uh, welcome to the podcast, Mike. Great to be here, Rusty. What a pleasure. You know, uh, you say that the opening line, your piece, on matters of foreign policy, Americans are divided into two hidden camps. And you say it's not what people expect, Republicans, Democrats, that's not exactly hidden. Liberals, conservative, again, not hidden. Or for that matter, sort of technical ways that they parcel out foreign policy views. But rather, what is the hidden divide? The hidden divide is between the people who divide the world into two categories and those who don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's... I, I, I always, I, I'm a great believer in simple binaries. Don't make it too complex. So the people who think that the world is divided between the saved and the damned. <laughs> yes. And those who think, well, it all depends on how well we manage things. <laughs> that's that's it that's it right there yeah no the divide the divide is between uh i i had trouble when writing the article in 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 finding the right uh labels to put on the divides um i think the divides are, are are kind of obvious well they're obvious to me i suspect they they're obvious to you too i, I hope they're obvious to the listeners i, I I, I started with uh, Protestant modernists versus fundamentalists, but I I think that the divide has its roots in the fundamentalist modernist split in our in our culture. But it it's a little bit the the groups are the groups are a little bit uh, uh, a little bit broader than that. Well, let's back up. So for the listeners. Fundamentalist modernist. It was 1925, I think, was the heresy trial of uh, Scopes, the Scopes Monkey Trial. Scopes Monkey Trial, but it was also the heresy trial of a very prominent preacher in 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 New York, whose name will come to me. And it was it was a heresy trial in the Presbyterian Church. He had a pulpit in the Presbyterian Church, and he was convicted. And John D. Rockefeller Jr. built Riverside Church so that he would have a pulpit. So he would represent the modernist camp. And, and then William Jennings Bryant, uh, William Jennings Bryant and the Stokes, the great Lord. Henry, Harry Emerson Fosdick. Fosdick, Fosdick. Oh, my Lord. That was so difficult. Well, yeah, well, you have, <laughs> how, how, how old are you, Rusty? How old are you? <laughs> to the names go. Yeah, Harry uh, Emerson Fosdick convicted. You know, and the first things, our office was originally in 156 Fifth Avenue, which was the Presbyterian Church Center for Foreign Missions. It was in that building that the heresy trial was conducted. 
Are you serious? And our founder, Richard John Newhouse, used to take great pleasure in. <laughs> you, oh, you have to show that to me. You yeah. have to show that to me because so, so here's a little interesting factoid about the about the Fosdick heresy trial. Um, who, who was the lay lawyer? The lay, so 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 Fosdick is a uh, is um uh. uh uh, he was not a Presbyterian. He was, um, uh, I'm drawing a blank again. He uh, might be a Methodist or he could have been. No, he was a Baptist. He was a Baptist. He was a Baptist and he was, uh, but he had a permanent guest pulpit uh, in the Presbyterian church. And William Jennings Bryan um, is the one who, who who basically brought him up on charges within the church. He said, what is this? heretic Baptist doing with a permanent guest pulpit in the Presbyterian church. If somebody's going to permanently uh, uh, have a, a permanent pulpit in the church, then they have to, uh, then they have to uh, preach uh, Presbyterian orthodoxy. And so who then is the uh, lay lawyer, lay Wall Street lawyer, Presbyterian lawyer, who defends Fosdick against the heresy trial? John Foster Dulles. John Foster Dulles. How did I guess that? I mean, that was a guess on my part, but it... <laughs> we, we, we may we may have discussed it at one point because because this is how this is actually how I got into all of this because because I I mentioned I believe in the um, in the essay the American friends of the Middle East. I work for your listeners. I work on the Middle East. That's my job, um, and. Uh, I, I found that that in the uh, in, in the 1950s, the CIA set up a, an organization to delegitimate Israel in domestic American politics, um, uh, the American Friends of the Middle East, and it was full of Protestant modernists. All these, you know, uh, all these um, leading lights of the Protestant modernist movement, uh, Sloan Coffin, and I. Uh, I discussed. Uh, it, in the, I remember discussing in the article, um, um, Hawking, w- William Ernest Hawking. Uh, all of them are a, either strongly affiliated with or members of the uh, American Friends of the Middle East. The Presbyterian Church in, in general was big into it. And so I started asking myself, how did the CIA get in bed with these guys? Um, and then it turns out that they were all also part of Dulles's, uh, basically his circle when he established the United Nations. So in the 1950s, you had this confluence in our of our elite between Protestant modernism, politics, international diplomacy, and so on. And we still the DNA of all that is still running through our uh, uh, through our country uh, very strongly. So the so we have. I mean, I think Fosdick, you know, was a proponent of um, unlimited atonement, uh, universal salvation. Um, so that uh, that you know, true Christianity really winds up uh, being an overarching truth, so to speak, and not a narrow truth. What a great way to put it. And so that you think that this is connected to a vision of American power after the war, where it's not an assertion of American interests in a narrow sense, but rather a kind of benevolent governance of the world according to, I don't know, American value, universal values, not American values. 
that's that's it. I, you know, it's a it's a confluence of the two. They believe it 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 is the the ideology of American empire. Uh, uh, Rockefeller Jr. believes that uh, the United States cannot be a power that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to present ourselves. Uh, uh, we have to present ourselves as representing values that are the values of all mankind. Now, he also believed that the values that the gospel represented the values of all mankind. But you can't preach it as the gospel. You have to find those currents of um, those currents of opinion in uh, in other religions that correspond to your views, and then push them as universal values. Well, I mean, it's a St. Paul says he's all things to all people. So there is a there's resources within the Christian tradition to adopt this kind of, I guess it would be a kind of multiculturalism in Nuce already in the in the in this in this post-war environment. I'm I I I am sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. But it takes on a particular form in late 19th century America, which is uh, which is progressivism, right? There's a, it's, it's, it's embedded with scientism, uh, and, and a belief in the perfectibility of human nature. It's not a, it's to me, it's not an accident that we get to this point today where progressivism believes that you, that there's no such thing as, uh, you know, the, the dictates of biology that we can, uh, that we can change our genders. Um, almost at will. Right. So, okay. So we have a, we have a political tradition, which has a very powerful foreign policy expression. And that's a, that's a view that God calls men of intelligence to manage human affairs towards a, a more harmonious end, uh, so to speak. And then we've got this other tradition. You, you, this is the fundamentalist tradition. Um, which is more, I mean, my notes, I think I put down in foreign policy, you have, you call it activist American exceptionalism. That's the progressive foreign policy. But I put down, you don't quite call it this way, but the other side is apocalyptic American exceptionalism. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you associate this with uh, Andrew Jackson and you call it, you call it the Jacksonian cast of mind as opposed to the progressive cast of mind. Yeah, I mean, the the basic I the basic divide here I think it starts with human nature. Is are we perfectible or, or not perfectible? And if you think that there's a fixed human nature and that we're not perfectible, it changes your understanding of what the role of government is because the uh, you know, the progressives believe that we can make better and better institutions, that those institutions can bring us closer and closer to uh, to all the, of humanity um, until all until the entire globe is just sort of managed by uh, by those uh, uh, enlightened moral few who know how to you know pull the levers of the machine. Um, and then the rest uh, the, on the on the other side. Uh, I think I'm going to say we believe because I I definitely put myself on the Jacksonian side there that uh, uh, perfection is not going to come through uh, our through um, uh, human effort. We are always going to be broken. uh, And 
perfection will only come uh, after the return of Christ, the end of days. That's the, there's there's no there's no there's no, there's no possibility um, uh, of of anything else. And until then, we're we're managing um, in in foreign policy. We're managing conflict, um, and we're managing. Uh, all of the unpleasantness that we've seen managed since the beginning of time until yesterday. I don't see any other way to look at it. So, so if we look at, if we look at, uh, in my, I remember listening to somebody, I can't remember who it was, say that uh, the era of grand strategy is over. Grand strategy meaning managing great power conflict. Uh, and that we're moving to a new era of global relations where both commerce and international institutions are going to define uh, 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 global relations. And, it, and so your point would be that a great power competition for the Jacksonian mindset is totally understandable. Yeah, duh, you're going to have constant competition for power. There's going to be disorder in the world. And what you need to do is you need to have a grand strategy for managing it versus the activist mindset the activist, exceptionalist, the progressive mindset is: Why would you want to live in a, in, in, a, in such a sloppy world when you could actually design institutions that would put an end to all that and lead to frictionless, frictionless and harmonious cooperation? I think it's I think it's even worse than that. I mean, when I say worse, that the the um, the the uh, what are you what are you what are you calling the what I'm calling the modernist the activist. Uh, you call it, in your article, you call it activist exceptionalism. In other words, it's important for listeners to realize that American internationalists are fascinatingly double-minded. In other words, we shouldn't, you gave the example of um, uh, uh, Dulles and his crowd. We shouldn't, or John Rock, Johnny Rockford Jr., we shouldn't assert Christianity. But he believed that by not asserting Christianity, he was actually fulfilling Christianity. American internationalists is a kind of far from being anti-American exceptionalism. They're saying, "Well, this Americanizes the whole world." It's, it's funny. It's funny that I. Uh, it's it's funny that I don't remember I, I, my own nomenclature of activist internationalist. It just shows you how how uncomfortable I was with. I, I never really felt that I, I I nailed the nomenclature. But when I said it was worse than what you described, we're living through and have been living through since the end of the Cold War, a kind of utopian moment in American foreign policy. Um, and that's why, that's why all this stuff has become so poignant, or, or I mean, so, so, uh, uh, so central to our, to our politics. Because the, 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 um, the, the activist internationalists, the progressives, they don't believe they don't believe that through our agency we can bring about this better world in which we no longer have power politics they believe that that world already exists and it it, it and it came into being with the end of the cold war and with the rise of the um the internet and the globalized network world that we have today we no longer have to behave. We no longer have to have a, um, uh, a, a grand strategy based on the balance of power. Uh, and you can see that working out in the Ukraine conflict, I think, very clearly. Okay, so, so. Spell that out. 
Because uh, President Biden has refused and, and his crew have refused all along to deter Putin in classical sense, you know, in, in the Cold War sense, by uh, putting, putting forces uh, in or around the theater, uh, uh, giving capabilities to the Ukrainians that will make it very clear to President Putin that if he takes an aggressive action, he will lose something that he holds very dear. So we, you know, instead of instead of engaging in in classical deterrence, we started uh, declassifying intelligence and saying, "Aha, we know what a we we were shaming him, telling him we 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 know what a bad thing you're contemplating, and aren't you going to be embarrassed when you do it?" So your argument here is that the presumption is that there's something called global public opinion. That's what they believe. To mobilize global public opinion and that it just become a irresistible, who could possibly go counter to global public opinion? Global, global public opinion tied to, uh, to economics. That's what they think is now has has changed the world and brought about this. We now we don't live in a in a Hobbesian dog eat dog world. We now live in a world in a world community, and there is global public opinion. And when the global public opinion is against you, it means that capital then runs away from you, and uh, and then uh, your uh, you you can't run your economy. And then because of the network world we're in, the globalized world. You you don't have the supply chains that you need in order to make everything everything run, so you get shamed and then you and 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 then you get cut out of the the, the global economic market and no one can stand up to that. Okay, so Dulles and his crowd envisioned constructing such world, and your argument here is that we have a. We, there's a faction within our foreign, I mean, a very powerful faction within our foreign policy elite that believes we already live in that world. It's just a matter of mobilizing it. Totally. They totally believe we, we live in that world. And it's, it's affecting their practical uh, decisions because they're very reluctant to engage in classical deterrence. In, in, in my world, I mean, in my mind, which is my thinking is based on classical balance of power thinking, Military deterrence is what prevents war, and it's what invigorates diplomacy. So deterrence is a very good thing. I mean, if 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 what we're trying to do is to is to prevent human suffering, have, have as little human suffering as, as possible, to have peace and prosperity, if those are our goals, and I think we all uh, share those those goals. Then the way you achieve that is through deterrence. Nasty actors, people that would be uh, aggressive, um, who people who are willing to destroy cities um, wantonly, uh, you know, like like the Russians, um, they are prevented from doing that by by deterrence, not by public opinion tied to finance. Well, but in defense of the, uh, I mean, the Biden administration seems to. I mean, I certainly, I, I hear what you're saying. There's certainly this, this uh, certainly with the sanctions regime, it was sold as a, as a kind of 21st century nuclear attack. Well, there'll be irresistible force. Uh, but in, in all fairness, there really aren't, I mean, we did train the Ukrainian military after 2014. Uh, we are giving them some tools. Uh, and we're, 
we're severely constrained in terms of what we can actually do without escalating, which would be. No, you've, you've, you're, you're living in their categories. Those are not my, those are not the categories of Harry Truman that, that we're constrained and we don't want to escalate. We want to, of course we want to escalate. We want to escalate in order to win the, the escalation ladder. We want to show, we want to, Putin flashes nuclear war in our eyes and Putin goes and uh, behaves like Mongols destroying cities. And that's designed to, to strike fear into our hearts. And our president, when he when he says, oh, gosh, we don't want World War Three, um, he's basically sa- saying to Putin, we're going to give you Ukraine. He we know, look, that uh, uh, Biden was willing to give Ukraine to Putin. He offered uh, asylum to, to Zelensky in the opening days of the war. That was a very pro-Russian position to take. Uh, we. They every time you know on Monday they tell us that uh, that uh, the lawyers and and prudence won't allow us to deliver weapons system X uh, to, um, uh, to to the Zelensky government or or intelligence um, assistance Y to uh, to the Zelensky government. Uh, and, and World War III will break out if we don't listen to the lawyers and prudence. That's on Monday. But then on Tuesday, under the, uh, under the actual influence of, of public opinion in the United States, all of a sudden the president overrides the lawyers and decides that, well, actually we can deliver those weapon systems and World War III won't break out. So clearly, clearly it was never – it wasn't really – the fear of escalation in World War III was not as great on Monday, it may have been a consideration somewhere, but it was not as great on Monday as they made out because they overrode it on Tuesday. This has happened time and again as we've gone through this conflict. With the result, and the, 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 key, the key issue here is that Putin has not been deterred. He's been punished. He's been punished for what he's done, and that may have changed his calculation as he's gone along, but, uh, but he's never been deterred. What in your piece, you you give a, a very compelling account of the Jacksonian sentiment, the apocalyptic American exceptionalism. And as you describe it, it's at once um, extremely reluctant to embroil itself in the affairs beyond our borders. But on the other hand, it's extremely violent when provoked. Uh, where do you think that this Ukraine thing, American public opinion is very much engaged. Uh, but I wonder, there's a, the Jacksonians would be very reluctant to actually commit American assets. I, I think, um, I think the, it depends on what you mean by assets. I think that they would be, uh, uh, Amer- the American public, um, especially once they saw what Putin was up to, I, I would distinguish between uh, the, the American right, the voter base, and what I would call the very online right. Very important distinction. I will not name the names of, uh, uh, so, as, so as not to get in a, in, in, a, in, in a nasty fight with friends of first things, right? But, there, but the, uh, I will not name the names of people that I think represent more the very online right than they do. Um, um, than they do the uh, uh, 
the 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 voting right. But there is, you know, there is a in Catholic circles, there's a there's a, a current of opinion which I would I will put, and I I admit this is unfair. This is not a fair depiction, uh, but it goes something like this. Putin is against gay marriage, therefore he's our ally, and that 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 to me is um, that is that to me is silly. The values-based foreign policy, which which sees Putin not as the manipulative imperialist that uh, that he is, you know, great Russian nationalist and imperialist that he is, um, uh, but but as a representative of some trend in Western civilization that we need to be in uh, in favor of in our foreign policy. I think that's a very naive uh, uh, and, and, and overly simplistic view. Um, uh, there's another view that says, oh, well, the... You, you know the Ukrainians provoked all of this, and 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 he's actually appeasable, Putin, and so we should have been appeasing him. Again, I think that's totally naive, and I think a lot of those opinions are really just domestic politics projected on to 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 the international scene, so that we don't like some people on the right, uh, a lot of people on the right, particularly people who supported Trump. They're distrustful of the Ukrainians in general because of the role that Ukraine played in the in in, in the impeachment hearings and so on, um, and they and they don't um, and they don't trust uh, Biden, uh, globalism, um, and so on. They they sense a kind of a kind of you know ever voracious globalist project behind uh, uh, behind all of this. Um, and so they and, and, and so they create a, a, a fictional Vladimir Putin that helps them prosecute their domestic uh, um, their domestic agenda through through foreign policy. Okay. I, I'm not sure that was actually an answer to your question, but I but it, but, it, but it provoked that in me. Whatever your question was, well, that's helpful because in terms of your piece, you've got these two. You've got these. You've got this managerial internationalist globalist uh, project. And then people like you and I, we kind of in this Jacksonian mindset, uh, we're 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 skeptical of this, but we've inherited it. We've inherited a world that was constructed by this mentality. So how do we how do we manage it towards something that's saner than it is now? Yeah, that is the that is the that is the uh, that is the 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 sixty thousand dollar question, and that that's the problem. They, they, because they really, I mean, we do live in we do live in a world that was created by these modernists or um, uh, activist interventionists. I can't remember whatever I called them. The um, uh, before I answer your question, which I actually really don't have an answer to, so I'm, I'm dodging it a little bit. But I, I remembered before what the, your earlier question was that provoked my. Uh, my 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 tirade against the very online right uh, uh, is is it that the way I read the Jacksonians um, is that now in the current conflict is that they don't want American troops put at risk, uh, but at the same time they recognize that this guy Putin has an agenda that is that that is ho- hostile to the American interest, uh, and 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 so my my argument here. Is that is that we could have deterred Putin by by injecting weapon systems into Ukraine, um, not by putting American troops at uh, at, at risk, 
uh, and that there's a, a distinction that has been lost on the right and on the re- on the left, and in in this utopian world we've been living in since the end of the Cold War, and 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 that is that um, deterrence is a slippery slope to or the the, the 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 difference between deterrence and and uh, uh, um, and warmongering, the the. President Obama especially depicted classical deterrence as a slippery slope to war, um, and a lot of people on the uh, uh, you know on the intellectual right have fallen into that as well, uh, and I think it's a mistake. I think we need to go back to Cold War, especially now that we have this conflict with China or this competition with China. We need to go back to classical Cold War thinking about deterring adversaries. That's how you prevent war. It is uh, interesting to look back on. You, you mentioned John Foster Dulles being the lawyer for uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick, that he, he did actually combine a, a certain sort of globalist internationalism, activism with, with a kind of hard-nosed uh, balance of power uh, thinking. Totally. A unique moment in American... You know, you know that he... You know, Fosdick was... You know... Um, uh, Dulles was personally responsible for selling the United Nations to the American people, and he, and he, and he sold it to them through the churches, through the pulpits. Uh, he sold it as a religious project. You know, the, the United Nations still kind of has this halo around it. Uh, I walk by on the by, often on the, on the way to and from work. So that's uh, that's thanks to John Foster Dulles. Um, who uh, who had this very very uh, I would say utopian idealistic uh, strain to his thinking, but interestingly he fell out with Fosdick in the 1950s. Fosdick renounced him, uh, and all oh Fosdick was with him uh, was part of his project to sell the United Nations to the American people, but then Fosdick broke with Dulles very sharply in the late 50s. Um, over nuclear deterrence and uh, nu- nuclear brinksmanship, he accused Dulles of uh, playing fast and loose with the uh, um, uh, with the survival of uh, humanity. Are we in a time of secular change? We've been through a long period of the modernist, activist, internationalist project. Are we heading towards a time uh, in American public opinion? That's 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 more hard nosed concerned about American interests and less preoccupied with the global system. I really don't know. Uh, if you'd have asked me this question, you know, one or two years into the Trump presidency, I would have said yes, absolutely. I mean, clearly, I thought that that's what Trump represented, however imperfectly, and that I thought um, naively, I thought that um, everyone was going to wake up to that. Uh, and they were going to see whatever they thought about Donald Trump personally, they were going to see that he was elected by people that were concerned about the globalist, if I could, if I, if I can use that word, overreach. Um, uh, and, um, and then I saw the, the, the system, uh, the system react against the reaction to globalism. Uh, and and it surprised me how much power it uh, uh, how how much power and purpose um, it managed to organize um, against it, 
And now I look and I, you know, I see the thing that really strikes me is like the energy policy of the Biden administration. It's totally goofy. It's completely ideological. It's it's um, it's leading to it's leading to uh, uh, the immiseration of poor people, rising rising energy prices, rising heating prices, rising food prices, uh, um, uh, inflation, and so on. And they know it, and it's hurting them at the polls. They know that when they go to the polls here in in in, in November and then in twenty twenty four, it's going to really hurt them, and yet they still won't pump gas and they still won't pump oil. So, I mean, they are, they are very ideologically committed uh, and they own a lot of, they, they, they have a lot of power. So I really don't know what's going to happen. We have a contest on our hands, Rusty. We do. Uh, and I really appreciate that article because it laid out the fact that the contest has been ongoing in American public life, religiously inflected from really the second great awakening, the origins of the country. Thanks for your time on the podcast, Mike. Thank you, Rusty. It was fun.